From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs is delaying the first deployment of its version of the Cerner Electronic Health Record System. The first deployment was supposed to go live next month at the VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. Stars and Stripes reports VA spokeswoman Christina Mandrucci says the agency will announce a revised schedule, quote, in the coming weeks. Proposals to cut improper payments and push category management are part of the policy efforts in the new White House budget request for fiscal 2021. The administrator of federal procurement policy, Michael Wooten, says total savings from category management hit $36 billion by the end of the fiscal year. GovExec reports cutting spending at the end of each fiscal year is another policy goal in the budget request. The White House is asking Congress for $150 million for the Technology Modernization Fund in fiscal 21. Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent says the top-line request for IT in the budget is $92.2 billion. NextGov reports the Department of Veterans Affairs is the top civilian agency. The administration wants $7.8 billion for IT spending there. $4.8 trillion budget request the White House released yesterday includes a 0.3% increase for military spending and a 5% decrease to non-defense spending. Seamus Daniels is pro uh, Program Manager and Research Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seamus, welcome back. It's great to have you. Francis, What's your takeaway me. from what you saw yesterday about the defense budget request at least? Well, this year the takeaway isn't on the top line. Mm -hmm. The top line's been locked in since last August at $740.5 billion per the last budget deal. So it's really about breaking it down into what's in the request this year. And one of the most significant highlights I saw was, you know, a decrease in procurement spending from what was projected in last year's budget. So we saw significant cuts to Navy shipbuilding. And, you know, part of that procurement funding, where is it going? It's going to research and development funding. That's where they're putting it. It was projected to fall in last year's budget. But, you know, RDT&E is, is staying flat mm -hmm. this year. What's, what's behind that, do you think, or what's behind it in what is written into the budget request as far as where that money wants, is, is supposed to go? I think this is part of DOD's effort to align their budget with the national defense strategy. And part of that is spending less on the procurement of existing systems mm -hmm. uh, and cutting back on some legacy platform systems. So that's why we're seeing the decrease in procurement. And they're looking to reinvest that uh, in RDT&E, looking, looking at investing it into emerging technologies. What's striking to me is that all three of the forces have been explicit over the last six months at least, and some of them longer, about talking about this divestiture of legacy systems. General Goldfein in the Air Force has talked about the platforms they don't need anymore. Um, secretary Esper, when he was the Army Secretary, they set up the big six, what, two or three years ago now, and have completely changed some of the things that the Army has, uh, has set as priorities in the past. Is that, is this kind of the culmination of that, or is this laying the groundwork for continuing that evolution if the Trump administration comes back in 2021 and can kind of continue this process? I think it's laying the groundwork to continue uh, divesting those platforms because we're actually seeing that DOD projects procurement spending to fall in the next one or two years before increasing again. So I think the department is looking to invest early on in those R&D efforts uh, to then, you know, 
procure more advanced platforms and technologies over time. How do you see this budget request aligning with the national defense strategy? What are the markers that cause you, and you're not the only person, I've seen other people writing about this last night and, and, and today, but what's what does that alignment look like? What, what are the ties? I think this budget is really interesting, particularly if you look at DOD's projections into the future. So, as we mentioned, procurement is going down the next one or two years, and it's increasing back up. Uh, but R&D, research and development, is falling over the course of the projections over time. So, I think there are some serious questions about whether DOD is willing to make the trade-offs over the long term to essentially say, look, we're willing to invest in modernization over the long haul, and that's not, not, not just in this year's budget. The R&D change is interesting to me because for a long time, industry complained that DOD basically wasn't spending nearly enough themselves on R&D, wanted industry to do it for them, but there was no guarantee that the money that they would spend would show up in returns, that, that the Pentagon was going to buy the stuff that industry developed. Yeah. What's the, is this a counter to that, or is this just kind of a natural evolution in the shift of the way that the Defense Department's looking at future warfare because of the NDS, some combination of both, something else that you see? What do you see? I think this is a shift to realign priorities, focusing on emerging, on emerging, technolo on emerging technologies. Uh, we saw the department just conduct its uh, defense-wide review, mm -hmm. and they're essentially reinvesting $5 billion from the fourth estate into emerging technologies. So I think it's part of the department's efforts to realign around the NDS, realign around emerging technologies. What I'll be looking forward uh, going, what I'll be looking forward to in the future mm -hmm. is essentially, you know, where are they actually re where are they actually investing those savings in R and D efforts? Mm -hmm. Are they actually in emerging technologies? And what are the trade-offs the department at large and the services are willing to make? What do we know about where that R and D spending will go? The kinds of things that they want to develop are, is the is the blueprint for that what we've seen in the NDS? Is it what we're seeing in the Army and now the other forces with the Big Six and and the other forces? is talking about what they need in the future, or is it somewhere else? Well, the department has said they're going to take the savings from the defense-wide review and reinvest them in technologies like hypersonic missiles, mm -hmm. 5G. So they have been saying there is the focus on emerging technologies. Uh, the other big winner in this year's request is the National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA, mm -hmm. which saw nearly a $3 billion increase in its budget, which means that they're looking to uh, invest in new nuclear weapons activities. A minute left, uh, Seamus. This is the budget request from the White House. It never turns out to be what the president signs in any administration and in any Congress. What are the areas that you think are likely to change most between this budget request and what the president actually signs eventually? I think the biggest question is whether Congress is on board with the platforms that DOD and the services are looking to divest. One of the things we didn't talk about, we don't have time now, is Space Force, too. Mm -hmm. This is another big priority of the president. It's laid out in great detail in this budget. 30 seconds, what do you see about Space Force in the future? What we see this year is that they're just essentially pushing Air Force funding and they're moving it over into the Space Force. I expect in the next couple of years to see funding from the Navy and the Army for space activities fall under the Space Force as well. Seamus, great to have you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Up next, big trends in government contracting straight ahead on Government Matters. What's ahead for this fiscal year and beyond? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Welcome back. The Department of Housing and Urban Development will modernize the security software for Ginny May. It's awarded a blanket purchase agreement to five companies, including Deloitte. Here to talk about top trends in contracting, Mike Cannon, Government and Public Services Leader at Deloitte. Mike, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What are some of the big trends that you're seeing in contracting and doing business with the government right sure. now? I think the best governments today are really focused on a couple things. The first is how do you embrace technologies that are really the future of today? And I say that in the sense of the future's here now, mm -hmm. like Kurt, uh, Kurt always says, is that it's always a, a, the future is now uh -huh. and we want it to be part of what we do. The second thing is that when you think about your workforce and what you need for the future, how do you train and develop them? How do you create a diverse and a very inclusive workforce is very important to us. And then third, it's really about how do we look at when you use AI and how do you think about that in an ethical fashion to make sure that you're you know, bringing the best to bear for what we can do for our citizens. What are the governments that you work with at all levels doing to effectively do each of those three things that you just talked about? The ones that are having success with it, how are they achieving that sure. success? So the first is you think about the citizen. You know, the government's there to give support to our citizens. And so if you think about what their needs are and work backwards from that and build the solutions that they need in a way that's easy for them to use, you get a lot more use and a lot more benefit from it. The second thing is if you look at productivity of the workforce, if you use AI to reduce mundane tasks, those hours can actually be used to go help and support what the value of government's trying to deliver. And so we did a study and we looked at the workforce in total and came back and said, we could probably take a billion hours out of mundane tasks and put that into the value for the citizens. That would be an amazing improvement. Mm -hmm. One of the big issues with that kind of conversation in the federal government is the employees worry and some of the groups that support the employees worry that you take a billion hours out, you can reduce FTEs to the tune of a billion hours. Right. What are you seeing at governments that maybe are ahead of the federal government at doing this, right. at using AI, using RPA and, and other types of technologies? Are they shedding people, or are they doing what the White House has proposed in the PMA, right. moving lower value to higher value work? They're doing exactly that, uh -huh. Francis. If you look at some of the states we work with in Medicaid and other caseworkers, if you can populate their forms for the caseworker, they can spend a lot more time with the individual who help, needs the help and has the needs. Mm -hmm. that's, I think that's the biggest hump for the federal government to overcome is helping its people to understand this technology will become your assistant, basically, not right. your replacement. That's well, right. Culturally, what are organizations doing to get over that hump? The number one thing is to talk about how do you upskill the workforce and help with the training of the employees to take advantage of the AI, to take advantage of the RPA, and put it into good use. And when you talk about how do you help them grow into those skills and grow into those capabilities, the workforce has a much more likelihood of taking on those, those new approaches. The example that I've used, people that watch the show regularly are probably sick of hearing about it, but at the Treasury Department Bureau of the Fiscal Service, John Hill and his team went to the employees and said, instead of saying, here's this new technology, RPA, they said, what are the tasks you do repeatedly mm -hmm. that you wish you didn't have to do anymore? Right. The employees made a list, and then they said, well, here's the solution to that. And he also asked them, what would you go do if you right. didn't have to do this stuff right. anymore? Is that the kind of thing you're seeing? Exactly. And then you could also do that with the citizens. Mm -hmm. In Albuquerque, they're doing some really interesting work where they invite citizens in to design workflows and processes that they can use. 
And so if you work both from the citizen and the employee, you get a whole lot better value. So that's where kind of where I wanted to go next is, again, what you're seeing as far as the actual interaction between the government organization and the customer that they serve. The agriculture departments work really mm -hmm. hard at this through their centers of excellence effort in trying to really mm -hmm. get out and talk to right. farmers on an ongoing basis. What are some of the best ways that you've seen governments connect with directly with the people they're supposed to serve? Albuquerque is a great right. example. Well, number one is just like what Amazon does. You go back and you study their needs mm -hmm. and you ask them, you do joint design sessions and you come back with ways that serve them and what is actually of no value to them. A lot of times governments persist to do things that don't have the value any longer in the marketplace or to that citizen's needs or that organization's needs. And so if you can replace it with higher value services, a lot of good things happen. So that's kind of counterintuitive. I think governments at all levels are good at adding things, at doing more things, mm -hmm. and they're not as good at stopping doing things that people don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. What, what's that, cult, that's another cultural change. What is that like where you're seeing organizations that are able to say, we don't have to do this anymore, people don't really need this or want this from us anymore? Yeah, I think best organizations talk a lot about the subtract key besides mm -hmm. the plus key. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we can stop doing that, as you said, doesn't have the value and challenge it? You know, some people talk about zero-based budgeting, which is not something our government typically does. But if you bring some of that thinking in from the purpose of how do you support the, cons the consumer or the citizen, the customer, you get a lot of benefits. We have about a minute left, Mike. What's the most important thing that a federal government organization can do in this understanding the citizen, the customer journey yeah. is the term that I hear a lot, to be able to then make educated, informed decisions about what they should keep yeah. doing and what they should stop doing? The, the key trend today is speed of change in the marketplace. And our government has to move faster in how we think about this because our procurement cycle sometimes can be as fast as technology cycles. If you look at some of the basic trends in business, they move much faster than an 18-month you know, contracting or procurement cycle out there. Mike, thanks very much for coming. You're it's welcome. Great to Thank have you, here. Francis. Up next, teleworkers in trouble, how privileges are changing. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's next at the Social Security Administration and the rest of government? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Social Security Administration is making more cuts to telework. Employees in the Office of Quality Review would lose one day a week of telework privileges, even though the existing telework agreement's been in place for 20 years. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, thanks for coming on as always. What is happening here, specifically in this office, but more broadly, what do you see as a trend or the multiple trends in telework? Well, goodness gracious, there's a wide variety of things going on here with the Social Security Administration. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest challenge is that they didn't really communicate it well to the labor unions first uh, to be able to bring them in and help manage the change and transition that's going to happen effective mm -hmm. to March. Mm -hmm. So the changes to the telework policy there at SSA is going to look a lot different for one organization, maybe in a, even a different region or field office than it will for headquarters and operations staff. Mm -hmm. um, 
I really feel for the supervisors and managers who are going to have to implement this and make a lot of rapid changes mm -hmm. to how their offices are being staffed and what their workplace policies are going to look like. Um, and they can't necessarily replicate what's happening in one organization within the other in the same agency. So mm -hmm. it's going to be really tough. What do you see as far as the successful change management that those managers will have to undertake? What, what can they do to make the best of this situation that doesn't sound like it's probably going to meet uh, with really good reviews from the employees? Okay, so my first recommendation would be to ask the employees. Ask the employees who have been working this way for 20 plus years or who have been enjoying a telework policy that was more uh, flexible over the last half a decade or more. Mm -hmm. um, go back to your HR policies and take a look at the flexible work policies that are already in place that still are staying the same, whether that be compressed work schedules, flexible schedules, even part-time to see what might work. You know, as we all know, federal employees are very dedicated to the mission. They understand what's required of them. So I think in clear communications and also inviting them to the solution table at this late stage would mm -hmm. make the, mes the best sense, especially in the early stages of rolling out a different policy that's going to change their availability, their work schedule in office, and when they're actually going to be commuting back and forth. It's kind of a permutation of the old saying, the best time to start was six months ago and the best, <laughs> the second best time to start is today. Yes. The sooner that communication between employee and management begins, the better it sounds like. I would say so and get really familiar with the other kinds of flexibilities that are available because they could offset some of the damage or um, strain mm -hmm. on the employees because at the end of the day, you know, the hope is that these restrictions will result in better performance, better accountability, better in customer service delivery. Uh, that all remains to be seen, mm -hmm. but it's also in the implementation. And supervisors and managers are at the front line. So I really encourage them to have those kinds of conversations and get very familiar with the kinds of programs and policies that are remaining the same and that they can leverage to tap into managing that change and transition. Yeah, it's interesting that you point that out because I'm not, I think everybody tends to believe when something like this comes down, this is it. Yeah. And that's it. That's the end of it. And when you tell me that there are other flexibilities, I'm not sure, I'm not confident that when that happens that people think about that or are maybe even aware of that. So yeah. that awareness strikes me as maybe the second most important thing behind the communications, just being able to tell people, well, this isn't exactly what you've been getting for a while, but there's this other thing over here that might help ameliorate the, the difficulty. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the transition that we're hoping to see with regards to the HR shops mm -hmm. transitioning into more of a consulting kind of arm so that they can be seen as a resource to managers and supervisors as they are managing a whole slew of changes with the workforce. Mm -hmm. The other resource that could be of benefit is leaning on the employee assistance program. A lot of agencies have access to um, team building and camaraderie. You could even potentially invite an EAP counselor if that's available in your agency to come to a team meeting to help manage some of the disgruntled or, or not disgruntled, but you know, the transition and change. People, exactly, yeah. to help smooth it out a little bit better and remind employees what benefits are available and what other kinds of flexible options they might be able to take advantage of. Yeah, I'm not picking on federal employees by any stretch. Nobody likes change, and so any change like this in any environment, government yes. or not, is likely to make people a little 
grumpy maybe is, is the right word. It is, especially in this case where there wasn't a policy already written and there's so many different variances. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in one side of the agency and one organization or team unit is not the exact same that's happening in the other. Even labor unions are differing in how they're implementing this. Some are being more restrictive, some are being more flexible, some are remaining the same. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be really tricky to manage as they roll out this program and also the accountability measures. You know, I'd like to see the um, cross-agency priority goals of customer experience, customer journey, uh, being tracked to see what the implications are. What's our starting point? And if they're citing the reasons for restricting a telework policy is based on the ability to deliver customer service to the American public, then what's our baseline and how are we measuring it now? And what is it going to look like six months or 12 months from now as we start to make changes to those workplace policies? Because otherwise, um, it's just smoke and mirrors. When you talked about the different policies being implemented different ways within the same agency, my, my gut was to say, well, shouldn't there be a universal policy at each agency or maybe across government? But on second thought, that's kind of a dumb idea because everybody's job is so different. It is. It's very different. So in some respects, you know, people have access to required equipment that have to be done on site. There is no availability for mm -hmm. portable work. Think about intelligence community when you're working in a SCIF. Um, consider when you have in-office customers that come. But when you do it really well and you equip managers and supervisors with the right set of competencies and the structure to be able to measure and hold accountable um, the people who are doing the work while also leveraging a variety of flexible work options, you'll get the best and greatest output. You uh, betrayed your military background when you used the term too much a little bit earlier, soldier. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.